to open your Bibles with me today to the book of 2 Kings. So since we don't all have a lot of familiarity with some of these books of the Bible, uh, if you're not sure where to find it, open to the middle of your Bible. You'll probably find the Psalms, and you're going to move back to the left a little bit into the history books. 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles all go right in a row there. The next few weeks here will be in a, a little mini-series called Reforming the Church. And so today we'll be rediscovering the Word and reforming the church. Just to set the stage here for you as we begin to read this text, um, Israel had turned away from God. They didn't consciously, overtly reject God so much as they drifted. And after they had drifted for a time, it became an outright rejection and they chose other gods. And God judged Israel and they were overtaken by Assyria, sent into exile. But the southern tribes, what was this divided kingdom known as Judah, remained. But by the time of this reading, uh, we see that, we see that uh, Judah had also turned away. And the kings of David's line had not followed in David's footsteps. They had done evil in the sight of the Lord. But as we begin in, in 2 Kings chapter 22, a new king has taken the throne. I was going to shorten this, but I decided I don't want to. So we're going to start with verse 1 of chapter 22. As we read in this holy book, we see this. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Take that in for a second. He was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of, uh, <clears throat> daughter of Adiah. She was born from Bozkath, or born in Bozkath. He, Josiah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary Shaphan, son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest and have him <clears throat> excuse me, and have him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Have them entrust it to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple, and have these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord, the carpenters, the builders, and the masons. Also have them purchase timber and dressed stone to repair the temple. But they need not account for the money entrusted to them because they are honest in their dealings. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan, who read it. Let's pause there before we pick up the reading again. The temple had fallen into disrepair 
because the word of God had been neglected. As the priests and the kings turned away from God and became evil in the sight of the Lord, altars to foreign gods were erected even in the temple. And as it had fallen into disrepair and the word of God was neglected, it had fallen so deeply, so far, that at this point the book of the law had been lost. Now some will speculate that this was the book of Deuteronomy only, and there are a number of of takes on that. But as we see this, what, what we need to recognize is the people of God did not have the Word of God before them. Picking up again with verse 8, Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan who read it. Then Shaphan the secretary went to the king and reported to him, Your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam son of Shaphan, Akbor son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Isaiah went to speak to the prophet Huldah, prophetess Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the new quarter. She said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the man who sent you to me, This is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people, according to everything written in the book the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me, and burned incense to other gods, and aroused my anger by all the idols their hands have made, My anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become a curse and be laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors, and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I am going to bring on this place. So they took her answer back to the king. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we encounter your word today we ask that you would speak to us through it open our eyes wash them that we might encounter your majesty rightly that we might see your glory 
and the weight of our sin and be convicted, cut to the heart. Lord, there are so many things that we come to You for, so many needs, and You want us to. You command us to. But help us never to do so with presumption, with arrogance, rather with humility on our knees, offering You nothing. We have nothing to offer. But Lord, let us bring You our hearts, confessing to You that we have not kept all the words in Your book. We have too often neglected Your book altogether. As we open Your Word today, Father, help us to rediscover it and to reform, to make changes not just to some grand theoretical structure, but to the house of our own heart, that all of our idols might be destroyed. These things we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, who gave himself for us and was himself, is himself your living word. Amen. On October 31st, 1517, a German professor and faithful monk did something that was not particularly controversial in itself, but in God's providence, it became the spark that would ignite the dry tinder of medieval Europe and set Christendom on fire. It would eventually burn down the very structure of Western society founded in the Church of Rome. Martin Luther posted 95 theses for debate on the door of the castle church at Wittenberg. And what we know as the Great Reformation was born. Now, ever since Constantine made Christianity the most favored religion in the Roman Empire some 1,200 years prior to this, things had begun to change within the church itself. No longer a persecuted minority, Christianity began to have social and political influence. It developed a hierarchy with political influence and intrigue. As being a Christian became socially and professionally desirable, the church began to drift away from its roots in the Hebrew Scriptures and the teaching of Christ's apostles, what we know as the Bible. It developed a complex system of theology and doctrine driven by the wind of charismatic leaders and accepted traditions in its sails, but less and less guided by the rudder of Scripture and no longer anchored to the gospel of Christ that Scripture revealed. Not unlike King Josiah in ancient Judah, Luther had spent his life wanting to please God, No monk or priest was ever more devoted, yet he was constantly tortured with doubting his salvation. How could he possibly be good enough to please the holy God? Even if that were possible, how could he know? How could he be certain he longed for assurance? Luther's life 
was changed when he began studying the New Testament. That was something that had not previously been emphasized or encouraged in his training. He was especially struck by Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith, and by the freedom in Christ taught in books like Galatians and Ephesians. This was not the Christian life that Luther had known, nor was it what he saw regularly promoted among the priests and leaders of the church. He began increasingly to notice discrepancies between the gospel he read in the Bible and the practices in the church. At the top of his list, at the top of his list of frustrations, was the hawking of what were called indulgences. The distributing of merits said to be stored up by Christ, the apostles, and other venerated saints for a price used for fundraising to rebuild and expand St. Peter's Basilica. Luther wasn't the first to question this practice, nor was he the first to call the church back to the Bible as its standard of faith and practice. Others like John Wycliffe in England in the 14th century and Jan Hus in Bohemia at the turn of the 15th had called the church to rediscover God's Word and reform its teachings and practices. Now, on All Hallows' Eve in Wittenberg, Saxony, it was all coming to a head. The Scripture was always at the heart of the pull toward Reformation, whether in church history or in the Bible itself. The principle of sola scriptura, Scripture alone, was central to all the rest of what became known as the Great Reformation or the Protestant Reformation. That brings us to our core reality for today. As we contemplate the Reformation, as we look at the Reformation under Josiah in ancient Judah, we see this. The Bible is our final authority for faith and life. The Bible is our final authority for faith and life. We see this not only in the Reformation, but in our text from 2 Kings. Notice, Josiah brings about reforms in Judah that centered around the Word of God, which had been so neglected as to be lost. This resulted in wickedness among God's people from top to bottom, the kings, the priests, down to the families and their children. So much so that God would finally exile even Judah altogether. Now, as we look at what happens in this text, Josiah had already desired to follow God. As an eight-year-old king, we recognize that he was in this position, but he was not equipped to be able to make decisions. And so the, the regents that ruled under him would do the work, and he would be raised by ostensibly the queen mother, and, and as he was taught the scriptures, he wanted to follow God. But he was following God in a land that was far from God, raised by a father who was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And Josiah grew until he was 16, we see in the parallel passage in 2 
Chronicles chapter 34, we see that when he is 16, he stands up and says, okay, that's enough. We're going to get rid of these idols. And he begins to tear down the, the idols around the land and uh, burns them and breaks them and scatters the ashes and dust over the graves of those who had worshipped those pagan idols. And he begins, as we read in 2, Corinthians, or in, uh, 2 Kings 22, he begins the rebuilding of the temple. Now this is an interesting thing for us to contemplate. The, re, the temple of God had been rebuilt a number of times, or had to be rebuilt a number of times, and most of the time we don't really think about that. Judah had not been overthrown. Later, Babylon would come in and they would destroy the temple and carry off the, all of the gold and all the furniture and all of those things. But now the temple was in disrepair, not because of an enemy, but because the children of God had become enemies of God. They had neglected the word. They had neglected the true ministry that was found in the word. And therefore, these reforms required the rebuilding of the place that marked the presence of God among them. As he did this, Hilkiah the priest, as he's there ministering, I don't have any idea whether Hilkiah was a godly person or not. What I do know is he was the priest. Many of these priests partook in pagan rituals. Some of them did not. But Hilkiah, in the process of all of this, finds the book of God's law. He recognizes that this is a significant thing. And he hands it over to the secretary, Shaphan, to take to the king. And he reads it to the king, and the king is immediately cut to the heart. Notice his humility. He tears his royal robes, a sign of grief and mourning and repentance. And then he goes and seeks a prophet to inquire of the Lord. At this time, there is a prophetess who speaks on behalf of God to them and gives the dire warning that there is no saving Judah. It's too late. How many of us recognize that there comes a point when it's too late? God has given us today to turn to Him. He's given us today to repent, to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I was going my way, and I, I need to go your way. Save me. And until we recognize the judgment that is coming, we cannot recognize the sweetness of His grace. The book of the law brought very clearly to Josiah's mind the reality that even when he thought that he was pursuing God, he didn't see how deep the rabbit hole went. And all who had come before him had wandered from God, and God would bring judgment. So the prophetess Huldah says, this is what the Lord says. Ain't no coming back from this. I will bring judgment. And if you have a moment, take a look at Habakkuk. It's only three chapters. I didn't write it down for you, so you can write it down for yourself. Habakkuk is lamenting these very things. 
He is seeing the evil and injustice that is taking place among the leaders, among the wicked kings, among the priests, the corruption of the clergy. And he says, how long, O Lord? Are you going to let this go on forever? And God says, hang on. Judgment's coming. I'm going to bring the Babylonians in. And Habakkuk says, what? Are you nuts, God? I think that's pretty much the tone he had. He says, Lord, there's just no way. You're righteous. You're the holy God. You can't use people more wicked than we are to judge us. And God says, watch me. But rest assured, Babylon will get their judgment as well. And Habakkuk comes to the conclusion, you're God. I'm not. I'm going to stand here with my mouth shut and worship you. That's the picture of what's happening now. As Josiah gets this word that I will show mercy and grace to you because of your humble heart. Because you were responsive to my word. And you grieved over the sins of the nation. But the nation will face the judgment that is coming. Worse judgment than they had ever imagined but exactly what God had promised when He said, I will be your God and will bless you in your going out and your coming in, and everything will be amazingly touched by my hand as you keep my word. But if you don't, if you neglect to take my word seriously, if you choose to trust your own understanding rather than to trust me with your whole heart, then all the curses that I have pronounced against the wicked nations will come upon you. We have far too often in our world portrayed half of God. We have either seen God as this angry, unpleasable entity just looking to smite us or as is probably more prominent today we see god is love god is love god is love all bets are off there are no rules do whatever you want because god surely wouldn't judge anyone he wouldn't send anyone to hell because god is love what difference does it make if i'm not hurting anybody and the holy God revealed in Scripture who is ultimate truth and the very nature of good itself says not so. My wrath burns hot against those who reject me. My wrath burns hot against the human race steeped in sin. But my love for the people that I have created and have called to myself is deeper. Our sins are many. His mercy is more. But we come to God on His terms or not at all. He offers us grace. He offers us peace. He offers us His favor through Christ. And we, when we neglect what God has given us, then our judgment is deserved. Let's move through some points that we need to observe in this text. First off, 
Notice, neglecting God's word is no small thing. Neglecting God's word is no small thing. You might put it this way, when we disregard Scripture, we are sinning against God. When we disregard Scripture, we are sinning against God. It's easy for us to overlook the crucial importance and urgency of God's Word in our lives. Now, most of us here in this room would very quickly say that the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God, even though the world around us is constantly, intensely, and increasingly dismissing and disregarding it. Even among the so-called church, we find what is often termed progressive Christianity or liberal theology, undermining the authority of God's Word, taking what can rightly be called a low view of Scripture. While we may recognize the Bible as God's Word, we often, too often, maybe even most often, treat it as anything but. It's easy to do, but it's a trap. Life is busy. Of course it is. We got, I don't have time. We have jobs and kids and obligations. Other things in life scream for our attention. And besides, the Bible is so hard to read. It's, it's so confusing. And we take the easy path. It's easy. But it's a trap. Understand this. These are all excuses to deprioritize the most central and important thing in our lives. God reveals Himself through His Word. We cannot, we dare not, rely on feelings, dreams, human understanding, or even religious leaders to know God. We need His book. At the center of every reform movement in the history of God's people has been the rediscovery and return to the actual Word of God. Human understanding is limited to begin with, not to mention corrupted by sin. Feelings are easily manipulated. I can feel stirred by the Spirit by a great song, but I can feel the same thing at a Bon Jovi concert. That's not the Spirit. That's emotional manipulation. Politicians do this all the time. They work up your emotions and your feelings. That's not the Spirit. Feelings can't be trusted. But God's Word is inerrant, infallible, and unchanging. Our memory verse for today is Isaiah 40, verse 8. Peter quotes it in his letter. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of our God endures forever. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. In Deuteronomy 11 and numerous other places, God told the Israelites that he would bless and guide them as long as they kept his word, but if they neglected it, he would curse them and bring judgment on them the same as he did the pagan nations he drove out before them. He demands I want to emphasize that word because I think we leave it out of our theology too often. Let's elevate God. 
Let's increase the size of our picture of who God is. God demands that we take His Word seriously. Neglecting God's Word is no small thing. When we disregard Scripture, we are sinning against God. Notice this also. Without God's Word, religion is idolatry. Without God's Word, religion is idolatry. We see this in the history of Israel and Judah. When they veer from the commandments to do what they think is right, to follow their conscience, as Jiminy Cricket would say, they inevitably end up worshiping idols. Now, we may not have idols that we sculpt with our hands and set up at an altar, although that still occurs today. But we make idols of so many other things. When we start to trust our own understanding to guide us, rather than clinging tightly to the Word of God, it's very easy for us to turn His blessings into idols that bring His curse. The job that God provided for you was never meant to be prioritized over gathering with His people. It was never meant for you to find your strength in understanding where your support comes from. You were made to trust His providence. Your family was not meant to take the place of God. But we make our children, our grandchildren, our spouses, our parents into idols. And when we make them idols, we set them against God. I don't know how much you've read the scriptures. But inevitably, the fate of idols, when confronted by God, is not good. They get destroyed. I want to beg you. I want to plead with you not to bring destruction on your loved ones by letting them become idols in your life. If you choose your family, even your own children, above prioritizing God and His Word, you make them idols. And God will do battle against your idols. Love your family enough not to do that. Without God's Word, religion is idolatry. Notice this, when we drift from Scripture, we are drifting from God. When we drift from Scripture, we are drifting from God. Israel had drifted away from God's Word. Their religion became the opposite of everything that God commanded. They were exiled. Then the same thing happened in Judah. And they were exiled. Because their religion, apart from God's Word dishonored God. God says through the prophet, stop. Away from me with your burnt offerings. It's a stench of death in my nostrils. I hate your worship. He says through Isaiah, these people praise me with their lips. They serve me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This is what happens when we drift from God's Word, 
This is the same thing that happened in the development of the church, especially from Constantine to Luther's time. It's not any less true in our own day. Undermining our faith in the Word of God is Satan's oldest and most consistent trick. All the way back to Genesis 3. Did God really say that? Can you really trust what God said? Because, you know, I think He's holding back from you. I think there's a greater, deeper pleasure if you just take a bite. He did the same thing to Jesus. Trying to alter God's timeline. Jesus, I can, I can give you food. I know you're hungry. You've been fasting for 40 days. Come on. You're, you're the Son of God. Turn, it, turn those stones into bread. And Jesus said, I don't need that bread. Because God's Word is my bread. And he held on to the Scriptures. The devil longs to undermine our faith in God's Word. We often look at all the sins around us and think, boy, that's our generation. We're so much deeper than others. Man, that was going on in the Old Testament. All the way back in Genesis, there's nothing new under the sun. Whatever kind of stupid sin we come up with, it's already been done. What troubles me is watching people who claim to be pastors, who claim to be teachers, saying, does God's Word really say that? Maybe we need to see the Bible as a living document. It needs to change with the times. And all I can hear is the hiss of a serpent. When we drift from God's Word, we are drifting from God. And yet, notice this. Even in the days of evil, the Lord has His people. Even in days of evil, the Lord has His people. And we see that. We see His people revealing themselves by their view of Scripture. Mark this down. When we value Scripture, we are revealing our allegiance. When we value Scripture, we are revealing our allegiance. Now, as I mentioned already, Israel had already been judged for their sins and decimated by Assyria, but Judah had become just as wicked. Even then, in the midst of this wicked line, God kept His promise, the Davidic covenant, when He had promised King David that someone from His line would always rule over Jerusalem. Even though these kings were wicked. And along the way, out of this wicked family of wicked kings leading the wicked people, God raised up a little kid, an eight-year-old, and said, this one's going to follow me. God raised up this eight-year-old boy from a wicked, godless family, gave him a heart to serve the Lord. The reality of this was evident when the book of the law was found. Because not only was he already seeking God, bringing about reforms, wanting to rebuild the temple to get rid of the idols, but even then he didn't say, well, I'm doing good, so you know, forget about the rest of you people. Hey, look, we got a book. I'm great. He tore his robes and he wept. 
He wept. This is a heart that's responsive to God. He was broken. And he humbled himself. The fact that he belonged to God was shown by his response in valuing the Scriptures. Notice this. Those who love the Lord revere his word. Those who love the Lord revere his word. When we hunger for Scripture, we are pursuing God's heart. If you love the Lord, you're going you're to have a high view of His Word. You're going to revere it. When we hunger for Scripture, we are pursuing God's heart. Because Josiah loved the Lord, he revered the Word of God. And when the book was found, he was awed, humbled, convicted. The Berean believers in Acts 17 were considered more noble than the others because they eagerly received Paul's gospel But notice, it wasn't just because they received it. They diligently studied the Scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was right. They didn't just say, hey, man, Paul is a great preacher. He's got convincing arguments. I'm okay. I'm good. I'm in. I want to live my best life now. I want to get into this, right? They said, what does the Word say? And every word that Paul preached, they held up against the standard of God's word. And God counted them noble for it. When directly confronted by the devil, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 8.3, that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that every word of Scripture is breathed out by God Himself. The Bible is God's special revelation of His heart, His character, and His will to His people. I don't know of a clearer depiction of this truth than in Psalm 19, so I would invite you to turn there. If you're still in 2 Kings, just go to the right a little bit. Around the middle of your Bible, you'll find the Psalms. 19 comes right after 18 and just before 20. I try to be helpful when I can. As we look at this, notice that the first half observes the revelation of God in creation, but the second half points out that the perfect, fuller revelation of God, of who He is, of what His heart desires, what His character and will are, is found in the second half. We see it in His Word. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of His chambers. Like a champion rejoicing to run His course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. This is the picture that Paul brings up in Romans 1 when he says that we can see God's his, uh, creative beauty, His power, His invisible qualities in the world around us. We don't see God, but we see God's working. 
I've heard a number of people say, well, you know, my, my church is in nature. I get to, you know, see God in nature. And, and that's a good start. It's a partial picture of who God is. But you can't know who He is. All that you get from seeing God in nature is a, a blurry picture of His invisible qualities. Paul says it's enough that you are without excuse. So if you look around you and you see the vastness of the created world, what Francis Bacon, who's credited with creating the scientific method or discovering the scientific method, what he called the second book of Scripture. We have the revealed word, but we have the created word world around us that shows us God. It points us to God, but it can't tell us what He's like, what His values are, or how we can have a relationship with Him. But it tells us for sure that there is a God and we'd better figure it out. David recognizes in the second half of this psalm that there is a way for us to know God. Look at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. When you see that perfect, you should have a picture in your mind of completeness, of fullness, not lacking anything that is needed to be all that it is supposed to be. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from a comb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your side, in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Those who love the Lord revere his word. When we hunger for scripture, we are pursuing God's heart. Mark this, loving God's word means radical rejection of worldliness. Loving God's word means radical rejection of worldliness. When we believe scripture, we will hate sin. When we believe scripture, we will hate sin. Josiah loved the Lord, so he took the Scripture seriously. When he read the book of the law, it cut him to the heart. And he couldn't just read it and not act. He believed that God was serious about sin, so he got radically serious about sin. You might hear in your mind the words of James in his letter. Don't merely listen to God's word. Do it. 
Be ye not hearers only, but doers of the word. Josiah said, when I, when I see this, when I see the word of God before me, how can I do anything else? Already knowing that the judgment is coming, he knows that he cannot turn God away from his wrath. God says it will not be quenched. And yet he brings about these radical rejections and reforms anyway. Because it's right to serve God. Back to 2 Kings just well, you don't have to turn there. In chapter 23 and in 2 Chronicles 35, we, we see the picture of what happens here. He, and he has already begun this, but what happens is he goes out and with a vengeance, he attacks not people, but the idols. Every single thing that would come between God and his people, he breaks it down, he smashes it, he burns it, he destroys it. He couldn't not act. He believed that God was serious about sin, so he got radically serious himself. Are we that serious about sin? We're so comfortable in our Christianity. As we sit here in this nice building with these nice chairs and the heat running, and none of us are worried about losing our jobs or our possessions because we came to church today. None of us are facing the beheading of our children as they might in some places today because we trust Jesus. Nobody is coming to you and saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to give you an opportunity. Let me make you a deal. I will let you live and I will not rape and kill your wife in front of you if you will renounce Jesus. We're not faced with that. That is a reality for others around the world. I have a friend and local pastor who does international training for other pastors. And when he goes to Central Asia, dealing with a number of countries, they cannot use their real names for fear that it will leak and their families will be taken, their homes will be burned. That's reality today. But us, we're still what we call a Christian nation. We rely on the laws of government to tell us whether something is moral or immoral. Can I just tell you the government's never been good at that? And never can be? That has nothing to do with political party. That has to do with you and me. Because we are wretched sinners in ourselves. Our thinking is messed up because of sin. We can't come up with morality out of secular laws. We can't bring about justice without God's word. We keep trying and all we do is bring about a different injustice going the other direction. God forgive us. James 4.4 tells us that friendship with the world is enmity or hatred toward God. Throughout the Bible we're told of the stark contrast between the light of God and the darkness of the world. Paul asks in 2 Corinthians 6.14, what fellowship can light have with darkness? And in Ephesians 5.8, he says to believers, you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Live as children of light. If we're going to take the Bible seriously as God's revealed word, 
If we're going to love God and pursue His heart, we must believe that He meant what He said in the book. Every time someone really believes God, it results in action. From Abraham leaving his homeland to Paul dedicating his life to bringing the gospel to us Gentiles, even to something as simple as giving somebody a drink of cold water in Jesus' name. When it comes to believing God about sin, judgment, and repentance, it brings a radical hatred of anything that breaks the heart of God. Jesus taught us to do whatever it takes. You got a problem with your eye taking you toward lust or covetousness? Man, cut it out. Better to be blind than to be in opposition to God. In other words, better to go through life with a physical ailment than to spend eternity in hell. Got a problem with your hand? Cut it off! Now Jesus is not, let's not be hyper-literal and silly, Jesus is not saying we should go about maiming ourselves. Some folks do that. That's not right. What he is saying is take whatever extreme measures are necessary to kill the sin in your life. If you believe God's word, you will hate sin. And if that is true of you, you will take radical extreme measures to do whatever it takes to get rid of that sin. Lastly, let's look at this. The Lord honors and preserves those who respond to His Word. The Lord honors and preserves those who respond to His Word. We see that in Josiah's life. God says, I'm, I'm not taking back the judgment. It's going to happen. Buckle up, because it's coming. But Josiah, because your heart was responsive, because you humbled yourself and you tore your robes and you wept before me, rest assured that I have connected with that humble heart. And notice that God's preservation and honor doesn't always look the way we might think. Because God tells them, you get to die before all this happens. Now, in the flesh, we might not take that as much of, a, of an honoring and preserving. He's saying, you don't, you're not going to have to see all the calamity that I'm bringing. You're not going to have to go through this. Jeremiah does, and he records in Lamentations for us the horrors that he faces as he cries out to God. That it's only God's compassion that keeps us from being destroyed. Because things got so bad in Jerusalem during this exile, there was famine, poverty. God brought that on them at the hand of more wicked people than them from a human perspective. So much so that parents were cannibalizing their own children and arguing this is from the scriptures. I didn't make it up. Arguing over not being willing to share their cannibalized child. Can your mind even take in the horrors of that? And God said, Josiah, 
I'm going to save you from seeing any of that. You'll die in peace and be laid to rest with your father, with your fathers. We will all die. We are destined to die once and to face judgment. God honors and preserves those who respond to his word. When we submit to scripture, when we submit to scripture, we are aligning ourselves with God. When we submit to scripture, when we see it and we do it, and we put ourselves under it, we recognize God's word as authoritative beyond my feelings, my understanding, beyond my American upbringing that teaches me a certain way of living bigger than any of that. Bigger than the John Wayne example I get watching those extremely wonderful westerns, right? No matter what my, my professors taught me, no matter what my boss says, that you, you got to make sure that you get ahead at all costs. No, no. We need to put ourselves under the Scripture's authority. At all times. We don't take our cues from the word, from the world. We take our cues from the word. And when we do that, we are aligning ourselves with God. The written word of God is the revelation of his character, his heart, and his will. When we align with God's word, we align with reality. We align ourselves with God. The word of God exposes our sin just as it did for King Josiah. He already lived to honor God, but he didn't truly understand the glory of God, the depth of Israel's sin, the depth of Judah's sin, the depth of his own sin, or the horror of being rejected and judged by God until he actually read the book for himself. Thankfully, that same book also shows us God's grace available by faith in His Son. All of Scripture points to Jesus as the only way to God. From Genesis to Revelation, the truth of Christ's words in John 14, 6 is clear. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. If we take God seriously, we must take the Bible seriously. If we take the Bible seriously, we cannot avoid the issue of sin and judgment. And we cannot have any hope of life apart from Christ. This shook Josiah and through him all of Israel. It shook Martin Luther in the 16th century as it did Wycliffe, Hus, and other reformers throughout church history. May it likewise cut us to the heart today. As we close, I want to make this practical. We've heard this. We've talked about taking the Bible seriously. So now what? What am I, what are you supposed to do about this? How can we get serious about God's Word and not leave this in the theoretical closet? It's no good to hear the Word if we don't put it into action. First, believe that the Bible really is God speaking to us and give it the weight it deserves. If we don't actually believe it in reality, we won't do anything about it in practice. It starts with believing. Next, pursue God's heart by feasting on His Word like a starving person. 
Prioritize private and corporate study. Prioritize sitting under expository preaching. No excuses. Make church and gathering around God's word as big a priority to you as it is to God. Model and teach that priority to your family. Next, get radical about sin. Repent. I say it again, repent. These were the first words of Jesus in his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. We've left repentance out of our gospel far too often. Tear your robes and destroy your idols. Utterly destroy them. Whatever it takes. Maybe for you, that means there are certain places you need to stop going. Maybe there are certain friends you need to stop being around. Shows you need to stop watching. Music you need to stop listening to. Maybe you need to change jobs because your job keeps you from prioritizing gathering with God's people or it drags your thoughts toward worldliness. Maybe you just need to get off social media altogether or cancel your TV subscription or streaming services. Some of you know I took social media off my phone. I still have access to it in other places, but I took it off my phone and it was 100% because I realized that I had been thinking about taking it off my phone for some time. But I hadn't. And that convicted me that this had become an idol. Something that I knew I should get rid of. But I didn't. That means that in my life, the convenience of having Facebook and YouTube and Instagram and Twitter on my phone, for me, I can't speak for you, but for me, that convenience, that connectedness became more important than pursuing God's will. And it had to go. No idols. No idols. Get radical about sin. If that means you cancel your Roku or your Amazon Prime or whatever, do it. Is that more important to you than being right with God? Ask God to reveal your idols to you as you hold your life up against the light of His Word. And then renounce them. Smash them. Burn them. Get radically serious about it. Lastly, if you haven't done so already, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. You might have been in church your whole life, but you've never come to Jesus. Or maybe this is your first time being in a church that's opening the Bible for you. The call is the same. Come to Jesus. Get on God's side. If you're taking God seriously, you already recognize that the Bible is clear. Living for God is eternal life and blessing. Living for anything else is death and judgment. If you don't realize that, you're not taking God seriously. We were made for the glory of God alone. 
it's equally clear that our only hope, the only way to have that life is grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone. If you're ready to turn from your way to God's way by trusting Jesus, come see me after the service. I'll be hanging around. I'll hang around till everybody's gone. If you need to talk about coming to Jesus, I'll be here. Or talk to that Christ follower near you, sitting, sitting there that you know they know Jesus. Talk to them. They'll, they'll hook you up or they'll bring you to me, but we'll get it done. Either way, don't harden your heart and don't stay silent. It's time for you, it's time for all of us to get serious about Jesus and serious about God's Word. Just like King Josiah, you have today come face to face with the Word of God. Now you have a choice. What will you do about it? Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers, And the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. The Bible is our final authority for faith and life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the privilege of standing before your people with this pulpit that represents visually the importance of your word. As we build our gatherings around the teaching of your word. Father, make our hearts responsive. Help us to recognize the crucial, essential centrality of your word to our lives And cause us to realize that Jesus, your Son, the living Word, is the only way for us to have a relationship with you. And if we're going to have that relationship, He needs to be our Lord. Make us radically serious about sin. Because your words bring life. They speak promises. And we can put our hope and our trust in you. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.